we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, and we are continuing our study. We have a couple more chapters, but we're getting close to the end. It's been almost a year that we've been going through Ecclesiastes, because we're doing it about once a month. I'll begin with an illustration. Bruce is small. Uh, Bruce is inexpensive. Bruce has a lot of scratches, and Bruce is not very powerful. But Bruce is valuable, at least he is to me. Who is Bruce? Anybody guesses? Bruce is my little blue truck, affectionately named uh, by Lily Thompson over there and my family. His name couldn't be Brutus. We tried that out. It just wouldn't fit. It had to be Bruce. Bruce fits him well. He doesn't look like much, but he can carry a load. He has helped friends and family. He's not pretentious. He knows his place. And best of all, he's low maintenance. Low maintenance. Bruce may not look like much, but I think he's very valuable. As some people would ask me, and I've asked, I don't know, it seems like this question comes up. If you could have any car you would want, what would you have? I would have Bruce. Bruce is who I'd have. My kids keep trying to convince me it's time to get somebody new, but I just can't do it. This may be an silly example, but um, it teaches us something that I hope makes this point. Some things don't shine brightly, but they are valuable. They're valuable. Some things are plain, so they don't get the credit that they deserve. This morning, our topic is about something that is plain, so that it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. This morning, our topic is about something that God finds very valuable, but we, as people, men and women, often undervalue. Uh, As you saw, we reach a section in Ecclesiastes, when Stephen read it earlier, that's different than what we've seen in the past. It's um, many proverbs, and it's not surprising because Ecclesiastes is probably written by Solomon, who wrote a lot of the proverbs, and so we see that here in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. Um, the topics kind of seem to jump, jump from place to place, and it's at times kind of difficult to decide, is there a main idea here or not? So I've spent a lot of time this week really thinking about that, and I really do believe there's a main idea, a main point for us to consider this morning to speak to us. Here's that big idea. I hope you can see it up on the screen here. Wisdom is often undervalued because the path of wisdom is, is humbling, but the wisdom of God is invaluable. The path to gaining wisdom is often very difficult. Uh, many other pursuits are more attractive, but, the, it, but pursuing wisdom is, is a worthy pursuit. It's important. And as we study our text, we're going to see parallels between the worth and wisdom of the worth of wisdom and the worth of Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom from God, and he is undervalued by the world, but he is more precious than any jewel. We're going to look at our text in three parts, and it kind of follows the lines that are on the screen. First, the problem of wisdom, and the problem of wisdom is that it's undervalued. Uh, Second, we're going to talk about the path of wisdom, and the path of wisdom is humility. And third, the person of wisdom, you can guess who that is, Jesus. So first, the problem of wisdom, undervalued. Second, the path of wisdom, humility. Third, the person of wisdom, Jesus. So we begin by looking at the problem, undervalued wisdom. 
And if you look at verses 13 through 17, the preacher records another observation. As you've been going through Ecclesiastes, he looks at the world and he observes. He sees life under the sun. And he has this observation that contrasts one who's rich and great and mighty with one who's poor and lowly. We read this in verses 13 to 17. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city and few men in it, and there was a great king. He came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was founded in a poor, wise man, and, be, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one, no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So here we have a poor man, and he's able against the odds to deliver his small city against a great king. The poor man, he, he does this by his, his own wisdom. He's able to create this plan. And as, as the dust settles and the city is secure, the problem is the poor man, he's treated as he was before. He's despised and he's ignored. The preacher, he, he, he's observing this, and he, he sees the injustice in it. This man, it was just because he has insignificant resources and he's, he's not a very um, you know, noble man, his wisdom is just forgotten. He, he's soon despised. He, he was valued when people needed him, when there was a need, when the city was in desperation, but he was forgotten after the pressure subsided. This is sad. It's, it's an injustice. In observing this world, it seems that we often look at appearance you know, treasure or power or authority and notoriety. And we take those things over what is lowly wisdom. And as such, we undervalue wisdom. Um, maybe you know this history. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, I'll, I'll read a, a quote from um, the National Archives. But um, in the Nixon and um, Kennedy debates, it was the first one to be televised on television. And um, the first time they saw appearance and so, let me read this. About 70 million people tuned in on TV for the first time to watch the Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960. When they turned on their television sets, they saw a tired Richard Nixon and a tanned, fit John F. Kennedy. Nixon had refused makeup for the cameras. That's a good man. Wore an ill-fitting shirt. <laughs> wore an ill-fitting shirt and hadn't gained back his natural weight after a serious knee injury and took that took two weeks in the hospital. Kennedy, on the other hand, had been um, campaigning in Southern California and appeared on camera with a nice California tan. The story has it those on, that watched it on, uh, or listened on the radio thought the debate was, you know, um, comparable, but they thought Nixon won. But the 70 million viewers that watched it on television said Kennedy just wiped him out. He was the clear victor. Uh, Kennedy leaped in the polls after that, and it seems like after that, looks really made a difference in American politics. Kennedy himself said it was TV that had turned the tide in, after he had won the election. And the commentator says this at the end. He says, it's curious to think who might have been elected if modern technology had been around throughout U.S. history. Uh, Washington wore dentures. Lincoln had a high-pitched voice. William Howard Taft, he, were, he weighed 300 pounds and James Madison was five foot four. It's kind of interesting to think what would happen. So I don't know your opinion on that debate, um, or whether you even know the content of the debate. I, I actually don't. But the advent of TV, in contrast to, to radio, illustrates the point. Appearance, appearances can sway an audience. Uh, we're attracted to things that are strong and tanned and powerful. And oftentimes, 
wisdom, wisdom is not that way. It's not that impressive. So this is our first of three reasons that we undervalue wisdom. The problem. Wisdom can appear unattractive. Wisdom can appear unattractive. As I said before, we're going to see parallels between, uh, in our text between the, the, the world and our valuation of wisdom and the valuation of Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He can't come to earth. And, and you know, he didn't come to earth in power. He came in lowliness and poverty. He didn't come on a throne, but in a manger. He didn't display power, but vulnerability. The wisdom of God came with, not with greatness and strength, but with weakness. And as such, the world didn't value the wisdom from God, Jesus. He had, Isaiah tells us, he had no beauty or form that we should desire him. In fact, the people didn't just undervalue him. They, they, thought to, they sought to eliminate him. Even some of his own family who had witnessed his wisdom and his abilities, they didn't believe in him. He was like this poor wise man. His words were despised and not heard by the world. But wisdom is often undervalued. Why? Because it's not that attractive. It can appear unattractive. Look at verses 17 and following. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Our first problem with undervaluing wisdom is it appears unattractive. And our second problem is that wisdom, it has an enemy. Wisdom has an enemy. I know you have. Have you experienced sitting in a, in a meeting in which you know, various points of view are taking place, and um, as, as the discussion begins, there's brainstorming, uh, there's certain pr- proposals and ideas come up, and because of the group's cohesive, there's much progress made. You, you, you learn things for, from one another. But then some meetings, I'm sure you've been in this state as well, are unprofitable. There's a meeting where there's a, a person that has a loud voice, and they, they're, they're persuasive, and they just, they're pushing their way through things. Well, there's the quieter person sits back and doesn't have the opportunity to give value in the meeting. This is what the preacher is speaking about. Quiet wisdom is better than loud, persuasive speaking. But the problem is that it just takes one sinner to destroy what is quite valuable. Wisdom's enemy, wisdom's enemy is sin. The, the preacher, he illustrates this uh, analogy, uh, this point with an analogy. He says that sweet-smelling ointment, um, when placed along some stinky thing, it's not, you don't see it. It's like the idea of, you know, you have clean laundry and you put one dirty sock in it, it spoils the whole load. I've tried that before. Take note that wisdom here is not only about knowledge and knowing how to practically respond a wisdom actually has a moral component to it. Wisdom is seeking to live in God's world, God's way. So the enemy of wisdom is sin. Sin fights against wisdom. The sinner pollutes wise counsel. The fool destroys what is, what is good. And folly is against God and his ways. Wisdom is undervalued because wisdom has an enemy and it's sin. Now, look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10. This gives us greater insight into the moral value of wisdom. 
And here we find our third problem with undervaluing wisdom. I'll read verses 2 and 3. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks in the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Here we're told that wisdom and foolishness are a a reflection of a person's character. Wisdom, as we see in verse 2, proceeds not from the head, but from the the heart. And the the heart is the center of a man's man's or woman's being. It's who they are, it's their character, it's who they really are personally. And the wise man's inclination, it says here, is to go to the right. This is an idiom for uh, righteous living, good character, righteous character. While the fool's inclination is to the left, an idiom for uh, an evil spirit, an evil character. Wisdom and foolishness are not simply intellectually. They're not intellectual. They're not just in our minds. They're at the core of a person's character. And this is our third problem with undervaluing wisdom. Wisdom is a character issue. Wisdom's a character issue. And since it is a character issue, the preacher says in verse 3 that you can simply watch somebody walk down the road and identify and see the difference. The fool, when he walks down the road, he's shown to be a fool. It's it's apparent to all. It's part of his character. It's part of who he is. is. So I want to pause right here for a second. I want us to see the important parallels again between wisdom and Jesus. The wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, often he spoke in quiet. And many times when he had something um, to, to, to be said, and he, he did it, um, he would tell his followers or the people that seen it to be quiet, to not share at the time. And when he gre- revealed the greatest amounts of wisdom, often he would take his followers alone into a place by themselves in private to share those things. His pattern was often to leave the crowds. Jesus was never driven to be the loudest voice in the room. He didn't shout down his opposition. And the thing that's interesting about that is in striking contrast to what the religious leaders did. Jesus, like this illustrates before his death, what Isaiah says of him, he didn't didn't argue to, to win a point or shout things down. Isaiah said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In contrast, you remember what the religious rulers do? Well, they stirred up the crowds. And they said to shout, crucify him, crucify him. They used loud voices, persuasive speech against Jesus. And, and, and they wooed the crowds and they won the day. One sinner did. Jesus' quiet, profound wisdom, it, it was not um, valued. It was undervalued by sinners. And in fact, think also, Judas, only one of the 12 disciples, one sinner it took to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver undervalued the cost of a slave. Judas, his character was to the left. Jesus' character was way to the right. Wisdom has a character part to it. And it is Jesus' righteous character that caused the world to undervalue him. His wisdom was a nuisance to those in authority. His wisdom, his wisdom the wisdom of God had angered their unrighteousness, their, their, their foolishness. Jesus lived in God's way, God's world, with perfect wisdom. But rather than the world treasuring him, it rejected him, it despised him. The world has a problem. What God treasures, the world undervalues and despises. And it's important 
that we are not deceived in the same way. In this last week, um, I just, I don't know, it just, maybe it happens all, every week, but you know, because I was studying wisdom, I heard it more, but I just heard lots of people asking for wisdom about various topics, um, for school or for a relationship that they're in or some particular situation, how to respond to it, uh, parenting. Uh, there was a number of things that I you know, heard and heard people asking for wisdom. We're, we're faced with decisions all the time, and, and I'm, I, I was encouraged by hearing believers asking God for wisdom. You should be encouraged that you are asking God for wisdom. That, that's a sign that you, you, you're humbling yourself, and you're saying, God, I need your, I need your help in these things. That, that glorifies God. But, but I want to ask a question, something that I've been really considering is, do we really know what we're asking for when we ask for wisdom? Asking for wisdom is a direct assault on sin, and it's a direct assault on our character flaws. The path of wisdom is through humility. And so when we pursue wisdom, we engage on a painful battle with our own pride. This is, this is the path of wisdom. So now, let's look at the preacher's Proverbs in the sort of next section, and they expose the humbling path to wisdom. And let's do it so, I encourage you, do it so with a particular urgency, because the Bible says the days are evil, this world is evil. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesians, I think you know this. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not, under, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is is. It's Ephesians 5. It's our blessed responsibility as Christians to walk wisely and to learn the path of wisdom, knowing God's will. In verses 4 through 20, there's five groups of Proverbs. And, and we're going to see, we're going to find five landmarks on the path to wisdom. And we will see again that these landmarks are ultimately found in Christ. He's the, the pillar of wisdom. Let me read verses 4 through 7 to find our first landmark. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an heir proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves." We know that authority, having authority, doesn't mean you deserve to be in that place, to sit in that seat of authority. Under the sun, people who are incompetent or um, uh, wicked end up in places they ought not be. Uh, while the rich, and, and don't get caught up in that word, richer just means that those are competent in business and able to do well, uh, they're passed over. But this, this isn't the, the preacher's point. That's just a, simply a fact of life that that happens. The, the wisdom to be gained is how do I live in such a world? How do I respond when rulers come against me in bad places? Maybe with taxes or policies or unjust laws. And the wisdom of God here is to act in calmness. To respond not with animosity but with self-control. Again, look at, think of Jesus. Jesus was under the rule of the Romans. And, as a, sol- and, and, and a soldier at any time, when he was walking down the road, he could, he could ask a Jew to carry his gear. And you, know, you could see this as it obviously would be um, upsetting 
for a Jew to have to carry his occupier's gear to help him out. But Jesus, what did he say? He said, if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two. It's in Matthew 5. Jesus' wisdom is calm humility. Not being weak, but not stirring up strife, and actually helping. Again, think of Jesus when he stood before an inferior man, a corrupt man, Pontius Pilate. Pilate had higher human authority than Jesus did. And he, he ought not to, but he did. He was part of being in the world. And he had the authority to sentence Jesus to death. But in all four Gospels, it is clear by Jesus' calm demeanor, standing before Pilate, Pilate had to say, I find no fault in this man. I mean, actually, if you think about it, Jesus actually asked him questions to help Pilate, to help him. In this world, the unjust, unfit men and women will be in, in authority. This is, it is a simple fact of life. The important question is, how will you respond when that happens? For myself, there are certain policies and laws and rules implemented right now that, that make, me, make me angry. And So how will I respond? Will I act in anger or in, in calmness? Will I, will I try to help others? Will I double down on serving? Will I answer truthfully when someone asks me, but will I do it in a way that's kind and in and, and, and a controlled way? This is the wisdom of God found in Christ Jesus, and it is invaluable. It is the path of wisdom. So our first landmark on the path to wisdom is calm self-control. Calm self-control, it means we must deny our passions, and it's humbling. Our first landmark, calm self-control. The second landmark on the path to uh, wisdom is through work. So let's look at verses 8 through 11. There's four different proverbs here, and they're all about work. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Interesting. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Makes sense. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So I hope you see here there's four different proverbs about work, and they kind of you know, mean just different aspects and, and, and truth about work. So verse 8, we'll kind of go through them here real quickly. Uh, doing evil will bring evil. It's kind of the idea of what goes around comes around. If someone tries to invade a home by, you know, or, or through a city by breaking through the wall, they're going to be bit by a snake. If you, you, you dig a pit, you dig a trap, you're going to fall in your own trap eventually. What goes around comes around. Verse 9 is kind of the, uh, a balancing to that, though. Here it's like, if you do productive, honest work, you also may get hurt as well. Anytime you do something productive, you, there, there's risks involved. It doesn't matter if you're doing it in a, in a good way or not. There's risks involved in this, this life. So it's the idea of if you're cutting a stone, you're probably going to smash your finger eventually. I know I've done that. Or <laughs> if, you, if you think that you're going to be you know, safe when you're splitting logs, there's been some dangerous things that have happened with splitting logs. Verse 10, another aspect, is against, a warning against laziness. Uh, um, this is about, you know, if you don't sharpen your axe, you keep splitting, it gets harder and harder. Well, I have this problem. I, not, as, not as bad, but I, in my office, I have a pencil, 
And I'm so lazy, I, I keep writing my pencil, eventually it burns down, and I don't want to walk across and then sharpen it. I'm too lazy to do so. And it takes me longer to write. Verse 11 is the opposite of laziness. This is about hasty foolishness. There's a way that things ought to be done and need to be done. There's like steps involved. And if you decide to skip the steps, like Chris, he forgot that if he didn't decide not to change the oil in his truck, it's going to break eventually. So here's the idea. You better charm the snake before you play with it. This is kind of the idea. So, what's the point of these Proverbs about work? Well, it's not just simply about work. It's that work requires wisdom. Working well requires wisdom because there's lots of different things that can happen. Work is needful for a helpful society and, and, and for healthy people, but it's imperfect. There are problems with work. There are problems with work. And even in the best environment, work has dangers. Just uh, April, I just saw her right there uh, a, a few weeks back. She came over to our house. She was excited. She'd got a promotion. All these things were working out. And then she called back about an hour later and said, my building is on fire. It was just like, wow. Thankfully, the Lord has helped her. But there's, even in the best circumstances, there's problems in this world. Jesus was faced with problems of work in this world. As he ministered in his own hometown, Mark record this, recorded this about him. He says he, he could do no mighty work there except he laid a hands on a few people and healed them. It was Mark 6. It, isn't it a wonder that the Son of Man in his work um, had trouble because of the people's unbelief? It, he, he had to endure the curse of work that we all have to, do, to deal with. But... The futility of work and the problems of work didn't stop Jesus from working. He worked with a much greater purpose in mind, a purpose that was apart even from the people he served. And Jesus declared, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4. To work well in this world, it requires wisdom. And the wise worker works for the wisdom of God, works for Jesus. He lives as a servant of of Christ. Like Jesus, Christians work well by working unto the Lord, not for self, but for him, for Jesus. So the second landmark on the path to wisdom is servanthood, is servanthood. The goal of the Christian worker isn't ultimately about completing the task, about you know, finishing up the paper or fixing the leak or you know, plumbing the line or balancing the bottom line. It's doing it for Christ and doing it unto the Lord. And when you do so, he promises to reward you. So our first landmark on the humbling path to wisdom is calm self-control. The second is servanthood. And the third... The third is about our words, about our words. Look at verses 12 through 14. The, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. In the, in the wisdom literature of the Old and New Testament, words, they, they come up often. You, you read, read James, you read, read the Proverbs, like just words are, it's all about talking, our, our speech and how we use our words. And the reason why is because words are a window into the heart. They, they expose the character of a per- person. What did Jesus say? Well, you know, for out of the, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
It is words that show who we are, who reveal who we really are. And according to verses 12 through 14, there's some foolish ways that people speak. And it says that those foolish words, they consume the speaker eventually. Those words are, are many, they're prolific, and, and they're overconfident, declaring what, not, not, not even knowing what's going to, and speaking about it. And ultimately, and ultimately it says they're mad. So again, we see that wisdom is not just about knowledge and about understanding what to, how to apply knowledge. Wisdom is about character. As, a wor- as, as the words of a man or woman, they expose their, their wisdom or their foolishness. Uh, verse, six, verse 13 says that uh, a fool begins speaking foolishness. He just begins speaking foolish, and eventually it, he begins speaking evil madness. It, it shows forth. Eventually his character is exposed, and his lack of understanding is shown to be in his character. The only way for you and I to be wise with our words is for our character to be conformed to Christ. James, Jesus' half-brother, says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is James 3. We can't fix our words on our own. No human being can. We need something, someone outside ourselves. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and he is the word of God. Words and wisdom are bound together. So it is only in Christ, it is only in Christ when you can find what you need. Jesus alone spoke words of spirit and truth. Uh, Jesus alone articulated um, truth alone, no falsehood. He alone knew what is to be, as that last verse says, and what will come to be. So we need to come to him. So the third landmark on the humbling path to wisdom is a muted mouth. A muted mouth. <laughs> a mouth governed by Christ. Let me ask you this. Are you having trouble with angry words? Maybe in your home or in your workplace? Maybe online. Sometimes it's easier to chat something out than when you're face-to-face. Looking through a screen is a little bit easier. Are you becoming comfortable with crass language Swearing? Uh, are your words sarcastic or do they, do they build up? I, for one, know my words, when I get angry, they need work when my emotions build up. There are many other questions we could ask about words, but, but the key is that we should be honest with ourselves and honest with Christ and go to him for help. We need a muted mouth to be conformed by Christ in our lives. This is a path to wisdom, and it's hard. It's hard. So our first landmark, I'll review again, the humbling path to wisdom is a calm self-control. Our second is servanthood. Our third is a muted mouth. And our fourth, we go there now, is about rest. About rest. Look at verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. One verse. Toil or work, is most wearying when you don't know how to accomplish what the project you're trying to do. Um, verse 15 tells us that this guy's a fool because he's, tr- he's trying to do what he's doing, he's getting tired just because he simply doesn't know how to get to the city. Like, he didn't ask for directions, he didn't, you know, he's probably like most men, all right? That, that might sound crazy, but I think we all get into this mistake. I've had to learn the, the hard way when writing a paper in school or composing a sermon 
when I, I, I have what I want to speak about, I, I know the conclusion, but I don't know the path to get there. And I wouldn't build an outline. It'd be lazy in that. And I'd skip a step, and so I'd just spin around and around writing without a path to get there. This is frustrating. It's foolish. You could call me a fool in doing so. But again, this proverb, it's not really about a strategic path. It's about looking to God to find rest. The source of rest and freedom from fruitless toil is found in none other than Christ Jesus. In knowing him, you find rest. You find the way. And by knowing him, your mind is educated and your heart is conformed to him, and thereby you gain rest in your souls. What did Jesus famously say? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek, or I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jesus' analogy, right, he's talking about plowing and how plowing is hard work, but plowing alongside Jesus is much easier. And the way that the Christian plows alongside Jesus is to learn of him. To learn of him. Jesus' words in this verse are, did you notice, they're his only time where he um, autobiographically tells us about his own character. And what does he say about his own character? He says, the wisdom of God, what does he say about his own character? He says he's gentle and lowly in heart. Or meek and lowly in heart. He is compassionate and kind. He is moved toward the weary. He is compelled to help the sinner. That's, that's his heart to do that. He, he delights, he desires to lighten the load of the downtrodden. So the fourth landmark on the humbling path to wisdom is this. We must admit our weakness. Admitting weakness. Admitting weakness. Again, humbling. The way to rest is not working harder. It is to listen, to lean on Jesus, to learn of him. Because he longs to help the sinner This is the heart and character of Jesus. It's humbling to admit our weakness, but it's restful as you turn to him, the one who is the wisest, whose character is perfect. So again, what are our landmarks? The first humbling landmark to the path to wisdom is calm self-control. The second is servanthood. The third is a muted mouth. The fourth is admitting, admitting weakness. And the fifth, the fifth is about surrendering, surrendering. Let me read verses 16 through 20. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. That's ominous. The last five verses of chapter 10, they shift to discussing wisdom and folly, but they they talk about it on a national level now. If you look at your text, um, I believe that the first four verses of there, uh, there's, there's this pattern where verse 16 is about folly, and then verse 17 is about wisdom. And then verse 18 is about folly. And then verse 19 is about wisdom. And then verse 20 arrives at this point of application. Uh, let's walk through it just, just really briefly. Verse 16 about folly. It says, if you have an immature king and your nation, that means your nation's in peril, 
And if your, your princes are out partying and, and drinking in the morning, that, that's bad news. Your future is dim for your nation. That's folly. But then in cro- contrast, verse 17, a, a king of upright character, um, and he, he's one who's going to usher in prosperity for his nation. And the princes who, who show moderation and um, aren't drinking, they're eating at the proper times, that, that's, a, that's a good sign for a land. And then... The opposite, though, in verse 18, woe to the people, woe to the people who are negligence and and not maintaining um, and and servicing their property will yield to to a slow destruction of um, that land. But then again, in verse 19, um, God gives bread and wine and money as a gift. And as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, those things aren't ultimate things. But they're a gift from God to be enjoyed. Um, and, and we know that money, you know, it says money as, answers everything. But money isn't everything. Money is the, you know, it, it leads to all kind of evil. But it's still, if you have some money, it's a, it's a good thing. It's helpful. It's a good thing for life. This is one of the gifts that God gives. Now, I believe, though, verse 20 is really where this gets to for us. We may be dissatisfied with our nation. We may be dissatisfied with how our, our king um, rules, but we should be careful because uh, our words or even our feelings, they have this ability to get out. The preacher warns that voices, your voice may be carried to the king. And Jesus, again, he's the model and the embodiment of wisdom when relating to authority. Jesus knew how to submit himself to God and then to authority. Jesus did that Perfectly. And, and, and what that meant for him, though, what that meant for him, we don't not, not, not necessarily like this, but it meant suffering. The Apostle Peter wrote this about Jesus when relating to authority. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 Wisdom is often undervalued because the path of wisdom is humbling. When Jesus suffered and was reviled, he, he surrendered himself to God, to the one who judges justly. This was a difficult path, but this is the path of wisdom that Jesus showed. He surrendered. He didn't fight. I think there's an important point for here in our nation in, in light of these words and in this time with our nation. As our national rulers continue to um, move away from godly principles. It seems to me, this is, this is my, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that more and more Christians are feeling okay to attack leaders with their words. And, and some of these words, I think, I, I believe, they're mean-spirited and slanderous. And I, I would say foolish. Um, this, is, this is not the path of wisdom. The wisdom of God in Christ is never to slander a ruler. He never did so. That doesn't mean he agreed but he fought wickedness by suffering and being reviled. And Jesus did so by entrusting himself to the one, the only one who judges justly, God the Father. If you want to live wisely in this world, it's the path of not power and strength, but lowliness and humility and suffering. That's the way. That's the path. It is the way of Jesus and it is the way of his followers. As we reach the end of our text... I want to refocus on kind of the main theme that you've been seeing throughout as we've been going through this. The main theme, the main point, is the person of wisdom, Jesus Christ. 
the person of wisdom, Jesus Christ. And I hope we see that he embodies wisdom, and his wisdom is from God. So if you would, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, through the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Here, the Apostle Paul describes what God values, the wisdom that God values. And it's, it's a certain type of wisdom. And it's, it's, I would say it's an unattractive type of wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. If you want to later read the whole chapter, it'll probably help you, but this is the section we'll look at. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, speaking to Christians. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See the character there? So that, no, so that, as it is written, let no one, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We'll stop there. What do you value? I have to admit that um, I often am actually, I'm often swayed by a person's um, charismatic personality, uh, by a winning record or strength or outward beauty. I can then overlook quiet profound wisdom because it doesn't shine as brightly. But what does God value? Who does God choose? God chooses what is foolish to be lifted up. He chooses weakness and poverty and obscurity to reveal himself through. Jesus Christ, he is the wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification or redemption. And he came in a manner that was all too different that human beings find naturally desirous. He came in humility. That is poverty and loneliness and and, and plainness. So as to contradict what the world desires of riches and fame, notoriety, outward beauty. And why? So he can put to to shame the foolish pride in the world and I would say in us. The ultimate reason is that that we undervalue wisdom, the wisdom of God, is because of our pride. It's our pride. We don't desire loneliness. We, we often want to be first, don't we? We want to be first. We don't want to lift up another. We want to be lifted up. And we, we, we don't want to be servants. We want to be served. This is a contradiction to wisdom, to the wisdom of God found in Jesus the Son. So, I would, together, let's do this together. Let's Ask God for forgiveness for undervaluing the wisdom of God. Let's ask him to change our perspective on wisdom, to value weakness and limitations and simplicity so that our Lord, who embodies these characteristics, will increasingly be our our boast, the one we boast in, as our characters are conformed to him. Gaining wisdom is painful because wisdom is about a character change. But the person of wisdom, the wisdom of God, Christ Jesus, his character is that of gentleness, meekness, 
lowliness. And he willingly suffers and is reviled so we might be invited to be wise with him in, in God, to have the same character conformed as he is. The world will always undervalue wisdom, but the Christian can see in Christ the valuable treasure of wisdom. I just want to ask you, um, think of Christ. Just think of how different he is from what you see in the world. If you're an unbeliever, and um, do you begin to see in your own life just how you know, notoriety and fame and those things, they're passing, and how the, the life of Christ, the, the humility, the, the lowliness, the giving of self is so much different for this world and so much better um, that's his character, and he calls you to follow him in that same way. It is so much better than the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of God. So let's pray together. Let's ask God to uh, forget, forgive us, and we might live and be conformed to him. Well, Lord God, we, we do undervalue the things that you value, and what we see in particular today about wisdom, we we often think that being wisdom is, is being wise is, is being smart and knowing the right answers, but Lord, we see in Christ that wisdom is about humility and, and loneliness and, and suffering. And so God, we, we ask that you forgive us for um, our pride. And uh, Lord, we, in many ways, we ask uh, with fear that you would change us because we know that path is painful, but we know it's good and ultimately very good because we were with Christ and like Christ. Thank you that we can come unto him, um, the one who is gentle and, and, and lowly, and how he gives us rest and, and, and help in our time of need. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.